Hi, I'm Talia. And I'm Fionn. And this is Untold Times. So today we have we are joined by two esteemed guests. We have Professor Laura Gowing and Professor Alice Taylor of Kings. And we'll be talking today about LGBTQ plus history month. Fionn? Yeah, so uh, this month celebrates LGBTQ History Month um, and all its glory, and we're grateful for both Alice and Laura to be joining us today. Um, first of all, we'd just like you guys to introduce yourselves and what you specialise in, and maybe perhaps what this month means to you guys. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm Alice Taylor. I'm a professor of medieval history at King's College London, and I specialise mostly in medieval history, but I have a long-standing interest in kind of queer histories, and Laura and I teach this module together at King's. And, and I suppose one of, the, one of the good things about LGBT History Month is that for one month a year, LGBT history gets thrust into the mainstream. Mm. And, in, and I think that's kind of particularly important because as one of the things that we both think about, both in the module and also in our kind of own work, is that the way in which kind of different forms of sexuality and gender identity have you know, kind of changed so much over time and that this is one way in which you can put a spotlight on that and say why it still matters today. I'm Laura Gowing, I'm a professor of early modern history at King's and my speciality is 17th century women's history and I use a lot of legal records but I teach with Alice, we teach this course on queer histories and for me LGBTQ History Month is of course a chance to talk about queer history and consume queer history endlessly but I think it's also a chance to um, work with the possibilities of thinking about the many different forms of what identity and history might mean in that context. I think about what queer history is, what LGBTQ history is, how it changes over time, and what, who are the subjects of that history and how, how are we going to look at them? Sounds great. Do you also think that with LGBT History Month that it creates an access for other minority histories like um, Indigenous history or I guess the danger of having individual history months is it doesn't reflect true intersectionality of the work that's actually being done, both in the realm of public, public history and academic history. Like nobody thinks about minorities as individual minoritized groups. It just doesn't make sense intellectually, does it? Um, so there's a, there's a risk of going back with it actually in terms of the practical stuff that's being done and the kind of history that is being encouraged over this month, I think we can absolutely see all sorts of important intersections. No, I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously, there are immediate dangers in, um, in basically compartmentalising things, as though these are not conversations not, that not only speak to one another, but are inherently bound up with each other. Um, and how societies create minorities is you know, one of the key and fundamental questions to like, the historical discipline in and of itself. But in the flip side of that is that also it provides some sort of focus to have those sorts of conversations. And even if those conversations don't get you know, resolved in a way that is amenable to all parties, at least there are venues to have them in a way that have a framework of understanding. And so for that, I suppose any sort of discussion that is about how we tell historical stories and also what are the ethical questions that arise by so doing, what does it make us look at ourselves to think about is like fundamentally that is to be encouraged. And if a month is the way in which that can be encouraged, then that's a good one. 
My flatmate Luke, he was, I asked him, I poked his brain a little bit if he had any questions, and he was saying he wanted to know if you felt that having LGBTQ History Month and then having Black History Month, that they spread awareness for the other, that all of these months, if they interlinked in the sense of wanting to spread awareness for the other and helping the other in that sense. I think they all encourage people to think about the way in which they're sort of because they're essentially public and quite schools focused events as well. They're not just about public history and that sort of popular history and media stuff, but they're very focused on the educational realm. And it may, really makes it possible for people to see the ways in which they, they can do history or they can both consume and create those kind of histories. Maybe gets people asking different kinds of questions of their own families and their friends about their own histories. Mm. I'm always, whenever with all of my lecturers, whenever I meet them, I just wish I could have a class about them and then I could know like everything about them. And, uh, Horrific idea. <laughs> but my one question was immediately, where did your interest in these subjects come from? Where, where did that stem from? When I, was, um, when I was at college, which was at Oxford many years ago, we had further subjects, we had special subjects, and my, my, my further subject was um, 17th century English literature, and my special subject was on 19th century French art. But I'm thinking of a time how cool it would be if it could be like a special subject on, on lesbian and gay history, as we would have called it then. And I kept like a load of ephemera, but I thought this would be amazing, just because I thought, what a fantasy, amazing, just, just imagine if it was a source for history, and it was a time of section 28, and um, lots of resistance to it, and I kept all the pamphlets that the GLC put out to talk about LGBT rights in the context of London. I, I threw them away about three years ago because I could see I was never going to teach this course. <laughs> Immediately, within five minutes, I would put in a module proposal to, to um, teach them. So I guess it was a, a sort of inspiration about what we hadn't been able to do at that time, and partly from seeing lesbian and gay history being deliberately excluded from schools in the 1980s and seeing how, how difficult that struggle had had been. But I think it was always, in, in any questions of minoritized identity, history is an amazing source for validation and support, isn't it? Because the story I always tell to the second years of the history and memory lecture of, um, in which you, you actually see um, at the Old Bailey in 18th century London, you see somebody, some man, propositioning another man by saying, oh, Peter the Great did it. And, you know, so and so did it. They kind of list all these people in history that they knew who got up to the same thing as a sort of validatory story. Because I remember, like when I read the module list that was available for both last year and this year, I was so excited that queer histories was an option because in school and stuff we didn't have that as an option. And like talking about LGBT people, we never did in school until we just did like sort of Nazi Germany, the history of Wales, like the Tudors. But it was just very basic mm -hmm. British white history so to have this option to learn about it is, is just really interesting for me personally and um, I really enjoy that and I just want to thank you guys. Schools are actually, it's really nice to hear because actually schools are more and more thinking about how they can include lesbian and gay history in yeah. all those yeah. topics like I, I'm, I'm doing a lecture to a teacher training workshop which will talk partly about um, the kind of stuff you can you could include in topics like Weimar, and it was low, low, yeah. the, even the standard syllabus, and even the standard A-level and GCSA themes has got room for for LGBTQ mm. history now. Yeah. Just can you get? You really need to give teachers the tools to get it 
you know, curriculum, yeah. and of course, to have schools that are open to doing I it. It's worked much better with Black History, I think. And so I guess far. by doing that through the education system and um, doing it through that school schooling as well, you know, children and students will understand more about it, so maybe less sort of hate crimes and homophobia hopefully will decrease in that sort of maybe regional areas and especially in somewhere like West Wales, I think. It would be, yeah. be great just to have that sort of more understanding and stuff there. So, yeah, particularly, yeah. yeah. I think there's, 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 there's always a challenge for, his, for, his, for historians in trying to formulate what it is you want to do because if you're saying we want a history of LGBTQ people, it makes it sound like there's a kind of consistent lesbian or gay person, trans person through, through history. And as historians, we'd be like, no, it's much more complicated than that. Mm, and yeah. subjectivity, like, I, and identity is widely complicated. People in 1500 wouldn't have seen themselves like that. But that's the grounds mm. on which you get it into education, like appealing on a kind of minoritised identity, and that's you know that's the basis on which we, we teach it here partly too, is, is that it's a minority issue that needs to be reflected. Mm. We, we, we started teaching partly drawing on the inspiration presented by the um, Royal Historical Society did a report on LGBTQ history and historians and historians mm. talked about the lack of representation, how students felt that their own identities weren't represented in history departments. So that was a really good way of justifying how we needed it and sort of seeing the, mm. the, the need for it. And it's interesting to think about the role that the Equalities Act has essentially played in bringing various minority histories mm. more to the, to the, to the fore. Yeah, and kind of creating a form of you know, institutional justification as mm. well. Because, you know, going back to the beginning of what you said, you know, the idea that when I was a student that, you know, I, that history could even encompass that yeah. in a way, that you could you could think about queer people and do mm. history at the same time. That it just it's not that I was like, I can't believe you you can't do this. It just never <laughs> even occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is just you know, those two those those two things are in some way entirely separate. You know, kind yeah. of my interest in queer culture and then on the other hand, you know, the fact that I'm a history student. Yeah. And one of the most kind of really extraordinary things that has followed on really from the Equality Act is the institutional support and the institutional framework yeah, for this sort of necessity. And so and, and that sense of, you know, what actually legislation kind of can do in terms of creating clear parameters for action is really hugely important. And it's hard to kind of think back in a way to, you know, pre Equality Act where yeah. You didn't have that sort of thing to kind of to, was no to think about to, in a way. There was, yeah, there was, yeah, there was not that long ago. No, you know, the before that, so I started just after that, in 2011. So it, it is a, it does make a difference in a way that I think is quite hard to, to look back on, say, about the early yeah. 2000s, when again, you know, you've got very, very shifted social attitudes already there, you've had the repeal of Section 28, but you don't have this institutional requirement yeah. in a way to actually say, we need to think about this yeah. you know, as, a, as an issue, and it is okay to do so. Yeah. And the only resistance that has had, the only kind of occasional moments of, of resistance come, as they tend to come in schools around the idea, that's sort of based on the idea, oh, it's people's private life, why would you want to do that as, as, as history? And I think for both of us, we're very clear, but this is a political issue and we're interested in legislation and the political significance of LGBT history in, in, in various periods and to say that it's private actually makes it very centralised and to insist that this is just people's private lives, it's not, it's made public in all sorts of, in, 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 
all sorts of ways. And of course, it's not essentially about sex; it's about all this other stuff that goes mm-hmm. into it. I was, I was not expecting to learn about it at university because I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And in my first year with HSSA, I had it with Ben Meachin, yeah. mm-hmm. and. He, we did London Nightlife, mm. and there we just got to explore Piccadilly and and drag history, and I and I just my eyes were open, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is amazing. And then the next year I got to do um, gender and sexuality in modern Britain, and I was just recommending it to everybody, and they were like, oh, that module isn't there anymore, but there's queer histories. And I was like, take it, just take the module. <laughs> it it's it's been like the best thing that I that I've done, and like. I tell my dad, my dad loves history, and I tell him everything that I learn, all of my little fun facts, and, and he just boasts about it to everybody. Oh, my daughter studies history at King's, and <laughs> she knows this fact, and this happened, and it's like every people that don't know about it, that don't have the opportunity to go to university, are just taught about it now from us learning about it at university. You know, we're telling our parents, and they're telling their friends. So what you teach us gets spread far wider than you realise. This is such a landscape of popular history now. Like, there's so much yeah. on Instagram. There's so many feeds you can follow on in, in Instagram. They have these wonderful little nuggets of history and this, this fantastic load of podcasts. And like lots of the books, we increasingly lots of books that we're using on the course are actually books which are written as popular history, like Paul Baker's book about Section 28, and um, Sarah Shulman's work about ACT UP is written as a history. So if, if you go to um, bookshops, like in Gaze for Word, there's so much history, yeah. history there. Yeah, I think like in a lot of bookshops now, I think on Waterstones and the Trafalgar Square, when there's just a big section on LGBT history. Yeah, um, much more than other kinds of history. You know, and that, like, I remember being like, growing up, there was never that sort of section mm-hmm. there. And I remember, like, I think back in the summer when I went home, I was just so happy to see, like, in my small little Waterstones, yeah. there was a small little shelf, but it just, it was there. Like, it wouldn't, mm. it wasn't there say, yeah. 10 years ago, but it was there mm-hmm. now. I guess the challenge also is to get it more into mainstream histories like yeah. bachelorism and environment, make sure that's something yeah. we talk mm-hmm. Is that your hope with maybe um, not just school curriculum but the university curriculum as well? Would you like it in sort of other modules as well for them to explore maybe queer histories a bit more or just. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it is already there in some ways, but yeah. we could probably have more mm-hmm. discussions about what are we talking about in this course and what are the narratives that we're offering, how does it feed into other stuff? And history always goes through these phases of expansion, you know, in which, you know, you think about, okay, well, what is it that I'm actually teaching? You know, who am I concentrating on and why am I doing it? And have I ever asked myself that question? You know, and in like the 1970s, it was women. <laughs> you know, like, are we able to talk about women in history? And there were a lot of people who were like, no. <laughs> like, because they don't matter. It's, you know, it's, you know, they, they if they've done it, yeah, or they don't have history. Sort of and, you know, so these ideas about how you kind of, how you do expand, you know, what are historical subjects and then how you talk about them and what they, what they, what they change or the extent to which they change, kind of much bigger narratives. These are kind of conversations that his, the historical discipline kind of, in some way, has always had to some, to some degree, you know, I mean, Law is a social historian, and like you know, if you went kind of back a few decades, social history was you know this real fundamental challenge to political history. Yeah, like who's are the voices that you're going to listen yeah. to? Can you recover the voices that are marginalised? And and so kind of as a result, that kind of conversation is is is, is just part of what it means to be a historian, and certainly what it means to kind of teach and, and, and disseminate history. 
The other side of this is obviously we're, we're living in a kind of technological revolution as we sit in this extraordinary studio, um, <laughs> which, you know, which again frees up things as well. It allows for different, you know, to be able to just find out so many more things mm. as well. And and I found actually um, that using that sort of material as well in teaching about getting the students aware of the difference between. You know, learning from a podcast, which I should say, I learn so much from podcasts. I love podcasts. Um, but also things about the difference between, okay, what is the difference between a book that's written for a generalist audience kind of versus a research piece? And how do those two things kind of actually fit together in terms of like the production and dissemination of knowledge? And this is something that, you know, as kind of queer history develops um, and as it kind of embeds itself more, that actually you're able to have it moves kind of beyond a recovery history and actually much more into how we think about, you know, how we think about the past, which is, you know, the fundamental question about what is the kind of, you know, basically how are people's lives regulated at different times and different places and how do people work within those categories and also try and expand and resist them. So, it's, that was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> I've, I was thinking about, because I'm like, I have the two of you, you're both professors which, you know, for me, seeing women professors always makes me so happy. And I'm like, yes, like, me too. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm and like for me, I was like, I would love to just be a professor. But I'm like, it, it, <laughs> Professor Yakumis, yes, yes, everybody. Hello. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's it. That's but you I'm sure you both had a long journey to get to where you are. And do you feel that you had to fight really hard to get here? and that you felt if you were alone on this journey or did you feel that you had allies and people by your side and pushing to support you? I'll let you answer that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. I can't... Mm. Kings has had a really long history Senior, like like many other colleges at the University of London, it's always been a long history of senior women involved in the in the in the departments, especially in history, who've been really important in supporting women. They often weren't professors, so there was a, and there was, so there was a long period when there weren't any professors, and there was a period where we had like one woman professor or two women professors, and now we have loads, or at least it feels like loads. It's still relatively small, but it's sort of fairly consistent proportion of the professoriate overall. But I can't, I mean, I think academia in general to me has been pretty welcoming and it hasn't felt like a struggle. If I, if I look back over my career, I can think, actually, yes, you did get to be a professor pretty late. Um, but on the other hand, I approached it fairly flexibly. Like I took, to, I, I took time out, I went part-time to have a kid before I was a professor and I didn't push to get promoted before and I moved institutions so I sort of took a demotion of that just because it fitted more in my life. So it's worked really flexibly for me because I had the benefit of coming in at a time when it felt you know, not not massively flexible but pretty doable. I think it's actually it's, it's an awful lot harder now. It would be it would be impossible now to work um, in the, to to go part time on a um, a lecturer's wage and have a kid and, and, and support it and then come and like be part time for four years mm. <laughs> and have somewhere to live in London. It's just as undoable now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's funny because I I joined them. It's like a while. It was a while. Yeah, about like eight years. Eight years, yeah. And Laura was one of the first people that 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 I met. And and actually, it's 
you know, she's very modest about yeah, it. So you must be telling us you've got a lot in common. Right? <laughs> <laughs> she rides a bike, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she rides a bike. Exactly. Um, and and I and what's really interesting is is suddenly immediately, you know, Laura is an extraordinary colleague to have, and you are extremely supportive of other people and other and particularly um, kind of female female careers and how you actually do kind of navigate all the kind of competing demands of you know life cycle but also um, but also st- like how to navigate institutions um, and so you know this it's it's not rocket science but it of course it makes a difference if you're in you know in any sort of working environment where you know you can see oh wait no I can I can do this. This is this is possible, um, and even if you're not thinking that consciously, you you kind of imbibe it unconsciously, and that's a kind of very uh, long long way. But I, you know, just to acknowledge my support for my my esteem for my. Of one of the things that we've seen yeah. is one of the things that's really changed over time is we, we now have a heart which, which understands yeah. non biological parenting and lesbian parenting yeah. and the kind of parenting need to have and how it all fits in. Like people aren't phased anymore when we have kids in whatever yeah. way we do it, and that's been just amazing. That has been, and yeah, and that has really changed yeah. very, very quickly yeah, yeah. as well. Yes. Is that, you know, that, and again, that's also where having those kinds of institutional rules and inst- mm. basically what are the standards of behaviour that your institution yeah. is going to allow like and who does it welcome and who doesn't it welcome and those things are not obviously not, <laughs> those are obviously not just questions that affect queer people they're you know any sort of kind of precarity any sort of marginality but it's hugely hugely important um, and you know and, and the department has actually been one of the things that helped us both massively was having a was having a female head of department a few yeah. years ago who was really determined to push for a female swan, which is a sort of yeah. validation. Yeah. Our yeah. oh, first female head of department. Yeah, first female. Yeah, which you could, yeah, which again shows that things you know things have shifted, but also we just had a lot of meetings and we and people started saying, well, this is really not okay, and we lo- lots of women were frustrated about various things, and we did all kinds of surveys to figure out what how we could find you things. And as a department, we all got on board. And managed to do it, so it was really everybody's, everybody's interest. It felt like everybody in the department was fundamentally committed to making things feel more equal and more, yeah. and, yeah. and more supportive. That was super inspiring. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it shifted conversations. Yeah, it does well. that still. Yeah. Actually, it feels like um, we're, you know, we're very good with colleagues. Do you think Kings as a whole university is very supportive towards sort of um, like the LGBTQ community in that sense as well, or even just looking as a my sense is that it is actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think with with groups like the various staff groups and the yeah. student groups, proudly kings, lanyards, and everything, it, mm. it feels like it is supportive, like it's providing a backup for a sometimes quite intense experience of LGBT life in London. I think mm. it's, it's, it's a massive thing to come to London as a young LGBT person. I, I feel like from what I can see, the university has a the job of providing some support. And yeah. it's, sort of, it's all down to a student body as well, isn't it? Like people mm. come from so many different places and so many different backgrounds and yet they manage to create really swiftly and I've seen it 
a community in which we all welcome each other, they know how to be, and they kind of mm. got a place you can come back to, and hopefully we've got people they can talk to. And it's really, particularly over the COVID years, the effort that students have put into supporting each other, it's just been really yeah. impressive, like the way these little communities have built, and we only see like tiny... Yeah, we see, we, yeah. See, yeah, we, we, we don't just get any of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Oh, it's great, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. this year, Casey has you did a massive sort of, with the sports teams, the yeah. Rainbow Laces campaign. Mm. Um, we all got like free Rainbow Laces, and yeah. we have like, yeah, the football yeah. girls have them as well. It's yeah. funny how these symbols are really significant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's just, it feels so small, but it's much larger than we yeah. realise. Mm-hmm. I um, I had some other questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, I'm, but, but this is actually, this is, I'm going off topic, I'm changing completely here, but my flatmate, okay. I was like, what do you have any questions and he gave me a very specific one okay, so wow. he was asking how has the legislation of getting bottom slash top surgery evolved in recent history for transgender people <coughs> quite a mouthful i don't even know i'm just he was like just ask and i was like okay <laughs> I mean that, that's a that's a huge it's a huge question and it's to be honest it's not one that I feel kind of equipped to to to, to answer because if you're saying Alice do you have like an internal timeline in your head like the answer would be no kind of yeah. no I don't which maybe is kind of indicative of how informed the general debate such as it is if you want to call it a debate is about what we actually like what are the facts of legislation what, what I think a lot of people are super confused about what what the what the legal sits. Sit, situation generally around trans stuff and mm. particularly around surgery. Because it's still going on at the minute, like, I think it's still up in the air, isn't it, at the moment? Mm. Everything's a bit, nobody's really sure what's going on, all the protests and debates are happening. That's a yeah. big question to ask. Yeah, sorry. It's really the delays in, yeah. in, the, um, in the system are really significant as well, aren't they? Yeah. Do you feel that London has been, okay, I, I feel that London is more progressive than other cities in the UK, but do you think with universities that London has been the most progressive advanced university with LGBTQ um, in general or is it just the UK England compared to other countries I mean I'm not I sure don't think so, no. I don't think no. it's kind of possible to I don't think it's really possible to make those sorts of calls, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, at the moment, we, you know, there are kind of international in- indices about, you know, to what extent is this like a, a, you know, a good or a bad, you know, country for LGBT people. And, you know, you probably saw the kind of recent report that came out that said actually that the UK has gone down, you know, as a as yeah. a as a place to be, and particularly for trans people, that actually it's no longer kind of seen as like this is this is this is this is fine um or rather better um i think in terms of the i think in terms of the history there is always thinking about progression is always very is always much more kind of complicated because then the one the one thinks because so you know i'm a medievalist and uh, by my kind of specialism and and a lot of the things that we look at are actually you know one would assume okay with with lgbt rights you've got a kind of progression of you know you have no rights and then you have more and more rights and the idea is kind of more and more rights and actually what you see is very very different sorts of kind of quote-unquote repressive regimes where sometimes uh, people's bodies and practices are very very heavily policed and then it kind of falls away again and you're like huh what's that about that's weird 
And it's more kind of that that I would stress in terms of thinking about the present day and present day issues and questions where LGBT people are clearly being up for grabs politically, you know, in a very, very clear way. And that therefore, that, that thinking about that as a historian, you do see these sorts of rises and falls in which certain groups of people, I'm not expressing myself very well, but certain groups of people are become the politicised object. And so as a result, in answer to your question, I would say that it's very, very difficult to actually to talk about progression as though the things that have happened are over, mm. if that makes sense. So, because yeah. repression is sort of cyclical and yeah. yeah, it's also different. It's also quite hard to integrate. You were thinking, you were thinking about the role of universities. It's often quite hard to integrate what what universities are doing into the wider communities mm. as a whole, because sometimes they seem to operate quite or quite autonomously. But my experience is actually that particularly outside London, it's, that often there's a massive connection between between universities and local communities and LGBT mm. subs from the places where that happens in the past, it's kind of had to be, and so there's, there's a kind of interchange going on which can be really helpful. And also it should be said that within queer history itself, there is often a kind of exasperation about the focus on London. You know, it's though mm, like, you know, yeah. oh, London is the saviour of queer history. <laughs> la, la, la. You know, and, and it's actually, and, and there's actually been some very, very kind of interesting kind of recent books that especially ties to decenter London. Queer Outside London. Yeah, Queer Outside London. Yes. Which we very much advise everyone to go. Um, so there is also those sorts of dynamics there as well, which, yeah. you know, what, what gets attention, where yeah. does it get attention? So I think like London is, um, maybe someone like Brighton, mm-hmm. who's always seen like the percentage yeah. like queerness or something, and then you don't really see outside, like, mm. you don't really think outside. I don't think Birmingham, you know, oh Birmingham yeah. or Liverpool or anything like that doesn't yeah. come to mind. You don't see all the stuff that's happening under the radar yeah. as yeah. well, but actually there's so many prides now. If you look at mm-hmm. how many your prides are, like, yeah. like everywhere has got a little yeah. pride, everywhere has got a little lesbian group meeting, everyone's got a little parenting group, everything. Yeah. There's loads, lo- so many different local groups of things and just general media stuff. Mm. Not even just in big cities, like in Scotland, Wales, or even in little towns, little villages, there's always like some I think, oh sorry, sorry, after you. I was just saying, maybe on a lighter question, you know, if you don't mind, I was going to ask one of my friends, ask me to ask this, who is your maybe favourite or maybe most influential LGBTQ historical figure that you can think of, maybe, um, your head or maybe Nick, if you name a few maybe so this really is off the top of my head um and it's actually one of the and, and obviously i'm going to go for a historian drink rather yeah. than a um but john boswell i i do think is um an astonishing figure in, in many many ways kind of um, academic uh spent as all of his career in, in north america uh, died very young died of aids related um uh, aids related complications and wrote this absolutely extraordinary book um, which is called um, uh, which is basically about kind of homosexuality in, in, in Christianity um, from antiquity to the basically the 15th century and he wrote this book when no one really was writing this sort of thing kind of like particularly within medieval studies 
and his aim was kind of very very clear and I should say like I'm I'm not a religious person and so but his aim was very 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 clear to actually say to people who were Christians there is not necessarily much inherent in Christian theology that necessitates this position and actually to historicize it you look at again this comes back to different levels of persecution different levels of intolerance and also that and 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 it is a historical thing in some way that he was like that this sort of that the, the homophobia is is historically contingent and not everything that he wrote was um you know people are like that is absolutely right um but it was something that was so challenging to religious establishments because obviously the idea of historical contingency is something that can be potentially you know very challenging very very threatening but also it offered such comfort for again you know these, these you know for, for people who you know were believers and who felt themselves to be totally and irredeemably cast out and i've always had a kind of slightly you know i do think that there is a power in 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 history that allows us to contextualize not only ourselves but also to interrogate things that are held to be true and in that there is such a huge amount of power and this man for whatever other things he kind of may have you know may have done or not done because you know nobody is a perfect individual um but to to write that book and it became you know it, it was it was read by so many people who would never read an academic book and it is a it is an academic book like a footnotes are intense and he just loved putting greek in the footnotes he was like he was like let me put some latin and some greek and you're like okay great <laughs> google translate um, they didn't have that yeah, exactly <laughs> and uh, and so so for that i would kind of i would say it and also in our situation that um it it also gives access to a whole bunch of people that you would never really think of as being part of queer history who lived a long long time ago who wouldn't have seen themselves in this light but nevertheless there are echoes there are concerns and there are people people with same sex attraction people with different uh, gender presentations that you know that are there and that in and of itself you need to contextualize it you need to understand it in the context of the society in which it comes but that awareness is key as well my have to say is Anne Lister, so <laughs> just a bigger run than a historian. Um, on the basis that if we didn't have her diaries, we might still, historians might still be saying, well, 18th century women, female friendship, 19th century women, female friendship, very important, but obviously no, but it's very hard to imagine lesbians really Her writings, so sexually explicit, and of course she meant to keep them secret, I very feel it, I have thoughts about whether we should be reading them in the kind of detail that we can do now, and decoding and everything but that's that's sort of by the by the by but her shameless appalling bad <laughs> behavior and her focus on her sexual is on the interests of also trying to figure out what was going on with her own body what was a lesbian what, what 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 did it mean to have sex with women what was she doing this, this kind of self-examination and um scrutiny that was all of the hours and hours which she spent now she must have been appalling to literally hours and hours just sat down every night and wrote a page just never seen her life. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm so grateful for it as a, as a historian and to all the scholars who've worked on this stuff over the years and made it available like independent publishers who have made it available to people because we've just transformed her lesbian history in the 1980s and 1990s and 
somebody wrote, somebody said it was like Rosetta Stone. Let's be honest, really is. Leave it now. Every time I pick them up, there's always something extraordinary. Think, what are you talking about? Why are you do don't do that? And it's yeah. just so lively. And so, but I think it's the um, she's she she is an elite woman. She is a mine. You know, she has a mining industry of her own, and she's a capitalist. But what I guess what grips readers is her. Um, Apparently, I'm um, her focus on herself. And her, she, she, I keep coming back to, it, to the idea she's totally shameless, but the kind of pursuit of her own pleasure, basically, yeah. is mm. seen as quite inspiring. Mm. Well, because it allows for a read, you know, for, for quite literally an experience and an understanding of self that you mm. you need that kind of proof because it's not normative. Yeah, like, that's exactly. the idea. Yeah. And, and yeah. within and within the historical discipline, the extent to which we confuse norms with experience yes indeed it can be used for all sorts of different purposes and that we, we often talk about you know kind of marginalized histories as being the burden of proof is greater you know and we, we also kind of understand that in the context of you know intersectional oppression kind of more broadly but actually the burden of proof is greater you know and also you're you're held up as being more representative like of your group than if you're part of the part of the norm. Mm. So that's why, you know, even though it's very problematic in lots of ways, that that's why it was so powerful at the time, because it was evidence. You know, evidence that was unmediated for a court that wasn't kind of presenting her as being like, I am sinful and being punished for it. It was actually the sense of no, I, this is this is how I. I'm not yeah. quite sure how to understand yeah. myself. I must be fulfilled. But I am. But you know. <laughs> but I am actively considering how to do so, and I am going about what I want. Which, yeah. Yeah. again, you know, it, it would be a, a rather odd world if we were all analysts. You know? <laughs> but, but but you need but you need an analyst to be able to say this is actually what an 18th century yeah. woman could look like and yeah. do and yeah. be yeah. and behave. And if that's possible, then. What else was going on? Mm, I think just that makes me think of this quote. I don't know where I read it, but it was about how uh, painting a woman and how she looks all beautiful and her body, whatever, doing a sculpture. And you take that and that's the image is that it's her beauty. She's so beautiful. We get to look at her. And then when you put a mirror in her hand, you call it vanity. And it's like that, not just about lesbianism, but just for women in general, of all sexualities to be able to explore themselves and understand themselves and not be vain doing it. It's just mm. about getting to know yourself mm. and who you are. Mm. And that's special. Mm-hmm. I think along with that analyst as well, um, if any of our listeners are interested, there's a great BBC series on analyst that called Gentleman Jack with, I think it's Saran Jones mm. and that other woman from Peaky Blinders. <laughs> <laughs> that other woman. <laughs> that other woman. <laughs> yeah, she's in Better as well. So, something. Which act? Which actors? Which characters? Uh, she acts. Um, sister and author, yeah. Oh, I meant in Peaky Blinders. Oh, sorry. I think she acts the sister in Peaky Blinders. Okay. Yeah, it's a great series, but I think they've stopped it now, I think. Yeah, they pulled it. They pulled it, yeah. Theme now within the whole Netflix BBC thing, a lot of uh, especially lesbian TV shows have been mm. pulled after maybe one or two series, which isn't great. But it's a bit of a disappointment. It's one of my favourite ones ended on a cliffhanger, and I will never know how it ends. See, I don't understand how they can do that in the show. It's how can you just end on a cliffhanger and then you don't never get anything else? Like I was saying that means it'll come back. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll see. Um, I think. Ooh, 
Well, yeah. can I just yeah. say one more Go thing? I think about London being an epicenter for LGBTQ History Month has been, or just the community in general, has been quite interesting coming from South Africa, yeah. where like every third person I met here was like part of the community, and I'm like, what's going on? Like this is so. It was so strange because at at home I'm like, Cape Town is a. They've got like a massive Pride Month. It's like very accepting, really, really beautiful to go especially with the nice weather. Um, but coming here, like at my school, we had a gay headmaster, but it was like hush-hush. Like not everybody knew, wasn't spoken about. We didn't have um, anybody talking about pride. And we did have openly gay students at our school, but it was never, it wasn't really like, I don't want to say accepted, but it wasn't acknowledged in that sense where we could talk about it. And only after high school did a lot of people come out as being queer, gay, whatever they they labeled themselves as. And it's been so interesting to see that coming here, where people, you get to explore yourself and you decide who you are and, and how you identify. And it's rather empowering to see how people change and grow when they move across the country or the globe, wherever. And it's and London. That's why London is is the way that it is. It's because it enables people to to do this and to become who they want to be. It's really interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. So, but yeah, I think we should probably end the podcast here. I think having it's an hour now, so I think that should be the end. Of it. I just want to thank yeah. Alice and Laura for joining us today and being our guests. And the discussion was really really interesting. Um, Well, thank you for doing this, and I hope all of our listeners get to enjoy this. This is something that not everybody has the opportunity to listen to every single day. And the fact that we have podcasts available for people to listen to and the internet and that we can just explore as much as we can, it's it's wonderful. And I love listening to two professionals, two professors who know the subject and love their subject. I, it just it makes me so happy to see people passionate and to listen to people talking about what they're passionate about. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, you, you've you. asked such great questions as well. You yeah. were just talking about. So thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for having us. us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, thank you guys. And yeah, thank you to our listeners, and we will see you soon. Yes. Thank you.